Thanks, Brittany. Good morning, Life Church. It's really good to see you this morning. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here, and it's my joy to open God's Word with you today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and so I hope you have a Bible with you. Um, I'd love for you to turn there in Matthew 6 and wait for me. Um, I told the first service, like, I have a little bit of heavy lifting to do before we get to Matthew 6, but we are headed towards Matthew 6, and so if you'll land there and wait for me, I think that'll serve you well. Um, you may know we started a new teaching series here at Life Church just last week. We are teaching through the Apostles' Creed. This is the second week of about 15 weeks that we're going to spend in the Creed. It's going to take us all the way up to the Advent season. It's what our fall is about here at Life Church. What is the Apostles' Creed? Well, the Apostles' Creed is the oldest of the Christian creeds or confessions, which means that for almost 2,000 years of the church's history, the Apostles' Creed has been accepted as a faithful summary of the key doctrines and truths taught by the apostles of Jesus themselves. So it's not written by the apostles of Jesus, but it summarizes the teaching of the apostles and what the church has recognized to be like the most critical pieces of that teaching. That's what the Apostles' Creed is. Why are we studying it this fall? Why are we giving 15 weeks to this? Well, throughout its history, the Apostles' Creed has really been used in two ways. It's been used to correct error, and it has been used to form and disciple God's people. And so let's talk about each of those just quickly. It's been used to correct error. The Apostles' Creed has been kind of this defined standard of truth. And so the church has recognized that the Apostles' Creed truly reflects the teaching of the apostles, and it therefore allows us to kind of weigh or measure against itself anything that might not be true. So the Apostles' Creed helps us to define what is right and what is wrong. It helps us to define what is true and what is false when it comes to Christian doctrine and the things that we would say about God and how he works in the world. Similarly, the creed has been used to form and to shape God's people. God's people have learned it themselves and then taught it to one another. It's been a way that we've been able to hand down from generation to generation to generation the truth of who God is and what God has done. We're studying the Apostles' Creed because we really think that those two things are still critical for us in 2022. Like we need to know the truth of the Apostles' Creed so that we know what is true and so that we know what is false. We need to be able to discern truth from error, and the Apostles' Creed helps us to do that. Secondly, we need to be formed and shaped by the truth, and the Apostles' Creed helps us to set our minds and our hearts on the truths that we hope will shape us and on the truths that we hope to pass down from generation to generation as the people of God. Now, last week, as we jumped into this, I offered what I thought were two important caveats as we began our study of the Apostles' Creed. I won't say this every week, but I'm going to say it again today in case you're still getting caught up to speed with us here. Um, The first caveat that I offered last week, I said that though we are teaching through the Apostles' Creed, we're still going to be teaching from the Word of God, from the Bible. 
And we do that because we believe that the Bible alone is the sufficient, authoritative word of God. That God has revealed everything we need to know about life and godliness, everything that we need to know in order to have a living, vibrant relationship with him. That comes to us through the Bible. It doesn't come to us through the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it does have authority. It is true, but it has authority, and it's true only insofar as it reflects what the Bible truly and authoritatively teaches. And so last week I said this is basically the difference between the light that shines from the sun and the light that shines from the moon. Both are sources of light, but only one produces light on its own, right? That's the sun. And the sun's light bounces off the moon, and we see the moon as a source of light, but it is not its own light. It's the light of the sun. And so God's word is the sun, right? It's the authoritative source of all that is good and true in our lives. We follow the creed only insofar as it reflects what God's word says. And so as a habit, as a rule here, you'll hear us preaching through the Apostles' Creed this fall, but we're still going to be preaching from the Bible, which is why I've sent you to Matthew 6. So that's the first caveat. Now here's the second caveat that I offered last week that I just want to remind us of. Here in a minute, we're all going to stand together. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's going to be on the screen behind me. You can read along with me. But I don't want you to think, because we're all standing and like speaking the same words, saying the same things together, I don't want anybody to misunderstand what's happening. Right, Christians, we don't believe in magic incantations. We don't believe that there's anything mystical or magical that happens simply because we're saying certain words together. Right? And so knowing the words of the Apostles' Creed, that can be helpful. Like I hope you, you might be memorizing this along with us as we study it together. Knowing the words of the Apostles' Creed, that can be helpful. But it's only helpful if you actually also believe the words of the Apostles' Creed. And so simply saying these things accomplishes nothing. What matters is that we truly believe these things, that we will confess with one another. That brings me to the final thing that we talked about last week as we got this series going. It's one more thing that I want to lay before you before we jump in today. Last week, I said that belief in the Apostles' Creed, it will do three things. True belief. It will, number one, inform our intellects. Number two, it will command our wills. And number three, it will transform our affections. To say that a slightly different way, true belief in the creed, it will shape our minds, what we think, our hands, what we do, our hearts, what we feel and desire, and ultimately what we love. And so today, and every day in this series, but as we consider the creed line by line, today we're looking at, I believe in God the Father Almighty, right? We just need to be asking ourselves, how does believing this shape those three things? My mind, my hands, my heart. How does the reality that God is Father and Father Almighty impact what I do, what I think, and what I love? And I pray this morning that Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6 will help us answer those questions. All right. Let's do this. Let's stand together as the people of God here in this place at this time. 
And we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. It'll be on the screen behind me. Now, as we read these words aloud, I want you to know we're aligning ourselves with thousands of years of Christians who have come before us, who have confessed these very same truths. And so it might seem to you like what's happening in this room on a Sunday morning is new because we sing new songs, we pray prayers that have never been prayed before. But the truth is that we are rooted in history. And these truths that we confess now are truths that bind us together, not just with all Christians today, but with all Christians throughout all of history. And we're also like setting our minds and our hearts here on the truths that unite us together as believers in Jesus, right? We aren't here united in this place on the basis of nationality or ethnicity or on social agenda or on political party. We're united in Christ by our belief in these truths that we read now together. Let's read the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I told the 915, um, this creed is going to force us to be patient because after each service that we preached so far, like three total, two last week, one already today, people have come to me and they've said, yeah, well, what does that one line mean? And I just say, you're gonna have to wait for it, right? Like come back in four weeks or in nine weeks or whatever when we are studying those things, because we will unpack each and every line of this together, just not today. The very first sentence of A.W. Tozer's great little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, It says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. To put that a different way, like more negatively, like if we get our thoughts about God wrong, if our thoughts about who God is and how he works in the world and in our lives If those thoughts are incomplete or distorted or wrong in any way, that sets us up for a world of grief. It sets up every other belief to be like wrong and distorted and incomplete and untrue. And because our lives are ultimately an expression of what we believe, then it also sets up every action, every word, every deed to be broken or distorted, or incomplete in some way. What we believe about God, it is the most important thing about us. And so we must get God right, in other words. Right? Our doctrine, our understanding of who God is, it must be good. The Apostles' Creed is spectacularly right and concise when it describes God as Father Almighty. What do we mean when we say that God is Almighty? 
Well, we mean that God is big. He is transcendent. He's powerful. He's able to do anything and everything that he wants to do. Right? There's nothing outside of him that constrains him or limits him in any way. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't get bored because he's almighty. When we call God almighty, we mean that God has created all things, and we mean that it was not hard for him to do that. In other words, he didn't grow weary as he created all things by the word of his power. When he rested at the end of the six days of creation, it was not because he was worn out, but because his work was perfect and it was finished. And even today, he is not taxed in any way by his sovereign administration of the universe. He's almighty. When we call God almighty, we mean that God sustains all things. He keeps the earth spinning on its axis and rotating around the sun. He maintains the passing of time from day to day and season to season. He sends rain and sun upon the earth so that grass and flowers and fields grow, so that plants and animals and people thrive. He sustains all things, including you and including me. When we call God Almighty, we mean that God oversees all things. The splitting of atoms, the multiplication of cells, every raindrop and every dew drop, the tides and the winds, and the exact force that gravity exerts upon the earth. These are things that God oversees and sustains. When we call God Almighty, we mean that God is completely without limit, right? He's an infinite God, which means that everything that he is, he is that thing infinitely. And so the Bible teaches us that God is love and that God is infinitely loving. His love is an infinite love. That means we could pour out the equivalent of a thousand oceans of love into your life and he would have no less love to give, right? That would be even less than a drop in a bucket to him, because his love is infinite. He can never, ever run out of love. The Bible tells us that God is merciful and gracious, and we know that his grace is infinite grace because God is almighty. You can sin against him, in other words, again and again and again. You can keep stumbling. You can keep wandering away from him, but if you are his child, he will keep forgiving you because his grace is infinite. He will never run out of the resources by which he forgives you fully and freely and forever because he's infinite. His righteous wrath is infinite as well. Just as there is no sin too great for him to forgive, there is no sin too small for him to ignore. Right? Any sin and every sin is rebellion against his infinitely righteous nature. Any sin and every sin is worthy of his infinitely righteous wrath. And there is no limit to that wrath. There is no limit to the degree to which he will bring everyone and everything to his perfect justice. When we call God Almighty, we mean that everything he is He is infinitely. And we mean that there is nothing outside of God that might constrain him or keep him from doing what he purposes to do. 
When we call God Almighty, we mean that He is all-powerful and all-knowing and unchanging. We mean that He is without limit, that He is without beginning, that He is without end. That is what we mean when we declare that God is Almighty. Now, there are a handful of religions in the world that worship a God who is Almighty, but the uniqueness of the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible and as clarified by the Apostles' Creed, is the fact that Christians worship a God who is Almighty Father, right? So not only is he transcendent, he's imminent, he's near. Not only is he infinitely powerful, he is intensely personal. He is Almighty Father. That's what we're saying when we call God Father, what do we mean when we, when we confess that God is Father? Well, it means several things. First, it means that we have truly believed in his gospel. My point here is that not everyone in the world has the ability to call God Father truly. Yes, God does create everyone and everything. Yes, God does sustain everyone and everything in his creation in a fatherly way. He cares about and for all people in a fatherly way, but God has only given to his children the right to call him father, and his children are only those who have turned from their sin and trusted in his gospel, right? He only gives the right to call him father to those who are his children by grace, by nature. None of us are truly his children. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, we were, before our conversion, by nature, children of wrath. And so, by nature, in ourselves, we deserved wrath, and we had no claim on the status before God as sons or daughters, no claim on the fatherly relationship with God. Paul goes on, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so the rich mercy and love of God, the things that qualify God's people to be called his sons and to call him father, these things are not ours at birth. They don't come to us because of where we grew up or what kind of family we grew up in. They don't come to us because of how many times a month we attend church or how much we give to the church, right? They come to us only when we recognize our daily ongoing need for God's grace. They come to us only when we recognize that by nature, what we deserved was death. And when we turn to God and trust in his gospel, then and only then can we rightly call him Father. So the first thing we mean when we call God Father is that we have truly believed the gospel. The second thing that we mean when we call God Father is that we are truly loved by God the Father. In God's family, right, he doesn't play favorites. 
which means that the love that God the Father has for God the Son, the love that God the Father has for the one whom he called his beloved Son, who was perfect in every way, who was righteous in every way, who obeyed God fully and completely from before the foundation of the earth and into eternity future. The love that God the Father has for God the Son, who right now rules and reigns over all things in perfect wisdom and justice, that perfect love is the same love that we confess is ours if we are members of God's adopted family. Because the Bible teaches that just as God the Father loves Jesus, his one and only son, so he loves every Christian who is in Christ, his many, many adopted children. When we confess that God is Father, we're confessing that we believe that God has loved us like that. When we call God Father, we confess that we have an inheritance in heaven that's more than our hearts can ever long for in this life. That means we confess that we are co-heirs of paradise with Jesus himself. And when we call God Father, we mean that we have the same access to God at this moment that Jesus himself has. We mean that we can pray to God and immediately receive an audience with him. Not because we deserve that privilege, but because Jesus does and God has conferred onto us the standing and the status that Jesus has. These are the things that we mean when we call God Father. Now the challenge for every human heart, every human heart, that confesses that God is Father Almighty is the challenge of believing both of those realities at the very same time. Most of us were capable of grabbing hold of one of those two things quite easily, but we have great difficulty holding on to both of them simultaneously. And so some of us, we, we can believe easily in an almighty God, but not one who is Father. And others of us, we can believe easily in a God who is Father, but not one who is almighty. Let me show you what I mean. Some of us, we think easily of God as Father, but we lose sight of his almightiness. As a result, the God that we confess belief in is soft. He's cuddly, but he isn't fearsome. Frankly, he's like, not a big deal. He's he's unimpressive. And we don't mind being around him. We don't mind having a relationship with him. After all, that seems like that's what he wants when he calls himself our father. But the truth is that we would never order our lives around a God who is father, but not almighty. Because why bother? I mean, imagine for a minute that I came over to your house. I was invited, right? You asked me to come, and so I came over to your house because we were going to hang out. And then the second that I walked through the door, um, your dog just started going crazy, right? Started barking its head off at me. I don't know if it's like the way I look or the way I smell or what, but your dog from moment one clearly just hates me. How am I going to respond to that? What am I going to do? Well, isn't that determined by just what kind of dog we're talking about? I mean, if you have like one of those little hamster dogs, you know, like a a toy poodle where you put like bows in its hair and you carry it around in a little purse, 
Like, frankly, I'm not going to be all that bothered by the little dog that is yapping its head off at me, right? I mean, if I can, like, crush your dog easily with my foot, like, I'm not going to sweat that thing. If, if the door is open and a gust of wind is going to come in and blow your dog away, right, I am just not going to care about that at all. But if your dog is, like, a German shepherd, you know, one that you've, like, imported from Berlin, and so it only responds to commands in German, you've named it, like, Blitz or something like that, and you don't buy dog food for your dog, you just slaughter a farm animal in the back every couple of days so that it can feast on that dog, right? If that's your dog, right, if it's 110 pounds of, like, muscle and teeth and hatred, then I'm going to walk very slowly and very cautiously into your house, right? Because the kind of dog that we're talking about shapes the way that we respond to that dog. And in the same way, if, if God is just this cuddly, soft, fatherly, toy poodle dog, right? if, that's, if that's who God is, then we're never going to fear that God. We're never going to tremble in the presence of that God because he's not almighty. But church, there is a kind of like fear and trembling in the presence of the Lord that is right and healthy and biblical. And if our view of God is like toy poodle sized, like we've neutered him of power and authority, we do not view him as God Almighty. And like we just, we don't fear him. Here's how you can tell. If this is you, I think this is the easiest way, right? You have lost sight of God Almighty and are clinging only to God the Father if God never challenges you, right? If you never read the word and come away from reading the word convicted, like if you never like spend time with another Christian and hear that other Christian talk about their faith and their struggle and their walk with the Lord, and you're never challenged by that. Like if you roll through here every week and you feel exactly the same way when you leave as you did when you rolled in, right? Like if you're never confronted by the reality that God is something that demands your worship, right? you've got a God who's Father, but not Almighty. You don't fear Him. You don't tremble before Him. You have not truly believed and the God of the Bible, the God of the Apostles' Creed. But we can do the same thing in the other way, right? right? We can believe that God is almighty, but not Father. Right? That means there's no warmth in our relationship with him. Like everything with God is transactional, right? Like we obey him, but we obey him so that he won't like pelt us with a heavenly lightning bolt. We obey him so that like he'll stay off of our back, Right? We'll obey him, but not because we love him in any way and not because we're moved by his love for us. No, our obedience is simply a way that we can manage God and try to control him so that he gives us the kind of life that we want. Right? That's, that's an infinite God, an almighty God, but not a God who loves you in a real fatherly way. The easiest way you can tell if this is you, how do you respond when you don't get what you want? Right? If you're faithful and sincere in your obedience to God and he still unleashes hell in your life, how do you respond to him? Right? If trials come, things are hard and not easy, if you feel like you've scratched God's back and he's done nothing for you, chances are 
You've got an almighty God, but not a fatherly God. We need to see God as the creed does, as God the Father Almighty. Right? We need to delight in his fatherly love and fatherly care for us. And we need to tremble before him because of his almighty power. If we do only one or the other, if we've not truly believed the God of the Bible or the God of the Apostles' Creed. Now, I know that some of you are getting a little bit impatient with me because I told you that we'd be in Matthew 6, and I still haven't gotten us to Matthew 6. I said, heavy lifting before we get there. Heavy lifting's done. I've been saving Matthew 6 for our last few minutes because I think the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and it is just a perfect illustration of what it looks like to believe truly that God is Father Almighty. And so let me, let me show you what I mean here in Matthew 6. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the most famous sermon ever preached for good reason. In chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching us to give in secret, to pray in secret, and to fast in secret. Like he's very eager uh, to guard against the kind of religious demonstration that just wants approval from people. But in the middle of that, when Jesus urges his disciples to pray in secret, he pauses them to teach them how to pray. And this is the prayer that Christians call the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up around here a few years ago, there's a decent chance that this was like on the wall in your classroom in school, or maybe you you learned this and memorized this in Sunday school as a child. My point today is that this prayer, it reflects perfectly what it looks like to believe in God the Father. Almighty. Let's read, starting in verse 9. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Stop right there, because you've just seen God the Father Almighty. Jesus addresses his prayer to God the Father Almighty. He calls God Father, and then he recognizes that God the Father is in heaven. Now, when You pray to a God who is in heaven. That's not the same way as praying to a God who is in Raleigh, right? The God who is of the Bible, he's not limited to one space or one time. He is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at every time. And so he is in Raleigh, but he's also here in Salisbury, and he's also everywhere else that he could possibly be all at the same time. Now, when you pray to a God who is in heaven, we're not praying to a God who is simply in a different place than we are. We're praying to a God who exists on a different plane than we are. He's a different category of being than you and me. And so you're praying and acknowledging the reality that he is God Almighty. That's the crux of how Jesus teaches us to pray. We pray to a God who's Father, yet to a God who is Almighty in heaven. Now remember, as we walk through this, that true belief, it shapes your head and your hands and your heart. It informs your intellects and it commands your wills and it transforms our affections. So let's look at how the rest of Jesus' prayer like reflects that. Use that as kind of a grid as we walk through these things that Jesus invites us to pray. Let's see how truly believing that God is Father Almighty, it's key to praying as Jesus taught us to pray. 
Verse nine, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, first petition, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That's the cry of an informed mind and of a transformed heart. An informed mind knows that God's name should be hallowed. It knows that God's reputation is precious. It knows that God is worthy of people recognizing and proclaiming the goodness and greatness of God, hallowing his name. But it's also the prayer of a transformed heart because it's a heart that genuinely desires for God's name to be hallowed. It's a heart that genuinely recognizes that God is more precious than we are. And so it cries out, not my name, but yours, God, be hallowed, because it's a heart that's transformed. Do you care about God's reputation? Do you desire and even earnestly seek that his name would be treasured and hallowed in the world? That's what happens in us when we believe genuinely, truly, in God the Father Almighty. Jesus goes on, verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think here we can see the petition of a heart that's transformed by true belief and a petition of hands that are commanded by true belief, right? Jesus is praying with a transformed heart, like I desire what God desires, to build his kingdom, not my own, to do his will, not my own. Or you can only genuinely pray those things if God has transformed your heart as you come face to face with God the Father Almighty. But it's not just your heart, it's also your hands because if you pray those things sincerely, then you will want to do those things sincerely. And so if you've prayed out of the desires of your heart for God's will to be done and for God's kingdom to come, then you're gonna put your money where your mouth is and you're going to strive to obey him. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. One who truly believes in the Father Almighty knows in his head that God's the provider of everything. He knows in his head that God is independent and that we are dependent upon God for everything. And so the reason Jesus teaches us to pray this is just because he wants us to recognize that we need God for everything, even bread. But because God is Father Almighty, We can trust that he is both able and willing to give us our bread. Our Father wants us to have the bread that we need. And he's able because he's almighty to give us the bread that we need. Verse 12, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so one who truly believes in the Father Almighty knows that he sinned against God and so seeks forgiveness from God. That's something that's true in his head. But also, with his hands, he seeks to forgive others as he's been forgiven by God. He he obeys God and extends to others the same forgiveness that he has received. Finally, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One who truly believes in the Father Almighty desires with his heart to live a life that's holy. He desires with his heart to resist evil, to resist the evil one. He desires with his heart to not stray into temptation. Honoring God through holy living 
It's not a box that he's trying to check so that God will do something for him. It's something that genuinely proceeds from a heart that is devoted to God in love, from a heart that's transformed by the fatherly love of God and the almighty power of God. What I'm trying to do here, I'm trying to show you that our prayers and our prayer lives will always reflect the degree to which we believe that God is Father Almighty. Right? Any deficiency in your prayers and in your prayer life, it's not a matter of the fact that your discipline isn't good. Right? It's a matter of the fact that you haven't believed fully and truly in the fact that God is Father Almighty, period. Right? Our prayers, they flow from our belief in who God is. This is how J.I. Packer puts this. He says, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. Right? The vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. So if our prayers are small, right, if we're praying for like the easy stuff, the small stuff, if our prayers are infrequent, if our prayers are self-centered, if our prayers aren't full of like rich truth about who God is, the key issue is not discipline, right? It's not because we aren't like structured enough. It's not because we haven't built prayer into our schedules. It's not because prayer isn't on our to-do list, right? The key issue that limits the vitality of our prayers is our vision of who God is. But if we pray weekly, it's because our vision of God is weak. We failed to believe fully that God is Father Almighty. But if we walk in humble and joyful dependence upon God, if we desire God's will and seek to obey God's will, if we pray for the advance of God's name and the purity of God's people, if we recognize that everything that we have and everything that we are comes from God, if we pray out of those commitments and convictions, right, prayers like those, they are shaped by belief, true belief in God the Father Almighty. Imagine for a moment that your father your earthly father, was the president of the United States. Now, for most of you, almost all of you, I don't know your dads. I don't know anything about your dads. Um, I am fairly convinced that they would be better than whoever we're going to be looking at in 2024 as a possibility, right? But let's just, for the sake of conversation, imagine for a moment that your earthly father was the president of the United States. Think about what it would be like to be the son or daughter of POTUS, you would have instant access to him at any time, no matter what. Instant access to the most powerful man on the planet. Think about what that would be like for a minute. I mean, if anybody else wants access to your dad, 
right? They have to like get on his schedule, which I imagine is not easy. It's not like you can just pick up the phone and do that, right? There are like all of these applications and background checks that you have to go through. The Secret Service like digs up all the dirt that they can possibly dig up on you. And then still there are like 19 cabinet secretaries and undersecretaries and administrative assistants that you're going to have to persuade you really need an audience with the President of the United States. So you're going to have to like jump through all of these hoops if you want to have a conversation with the President. Or think for a minute about what happens when someone runs up to the president of the United States, right? right? Even if that person has been through all of the background checks and they're on his schedule, if somebody makes a sudden move toward the president, like nine guys who are ripped in black suits, like put their bodies between that person and the president, right? That's just how it works. Because access to the president, it's limited. Unless you are one of his children. Right? If your dad is the president, you can barge in on him at any time. You don't need an appointment. You don't have to get on his schedule. If you run toward your dad, Clint Eastwood isn't throwing his body in front of you. No, the child of the president has access to the president. Church, that's what can be true for us if we truly believe in God the Father Almighty. It means that there is never a moment when we don't have access to the most glorious and powerful being in the universe. It means there's never a moment when God doesn't want to hear from us or be with us, when he doesn't receive us with love and care and concern. He is our Father, which means we can always come to him. And he's almighty, which means that when we do come to him, he can always do immeasurably more than we ask or think he might do. May the truth of who our Father Almighty is shape our minds, our hands, and our hearts with his glory and beauty. Pray with me this morning. Almighty Father, we pray that you would humble us before you this morning. May we come before you fearing and trembling you. May we come before you recognizing your almighty power to do anything and everything that you please. At the same time, may we come before you sure and certain of the depth of your love for us. May we come before you sure and certain of your tender, kind, fatherly care for us. May we come before you sure and certain that you are both willing and able to do all that we ask or think. And may our true belief in who you are shape what we know, what we do, and the very structures of our hearts, what we feel. Move among us in this way, God. We pray that today. In Jesus' name, amen.